In this episode, you're going to learn why that old term, less is more, really is true in our schools. And you're going to get some strategies on how to de-implement with purpose. Hey everyone, welcome to Global Ed Leaders, a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I'm Shane Leaning, an organizational coach, and in this show I get to know the educators, innovators, and leaders making a difference in international schools around the world. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Hamilton. Now he's a prominent figure in the education sector, currently the Group Director of Education at Cognition Education. Now, Aaron's got a real wide career working with schools around the world. And recently, he co-authored a book with John Hattie and Dylan William called Making Room for Impact. And this book offers a de-implementation guide specifically for schools. And this is one of the first guides of its kind. We jumped into the conversation with me asking Aaron whether he thinks we do too much in schools. Let's jump in. I think a very good question, Shane, and there's a long answer to that and and a short answer. The short answer is is categorically yes. The long answer or the the somewhat longer answer is that John Hattie, Dylan William and I, we we have been uh, reviewing and digging into the research over over the last few years on the relationship between all of the things that we do or that school systems and schools themselves do and the return for student learning from those things. And we have been surprised, I mean, actually disappointed that so few of these things are uh, really robust drivers, really robust silver bullets that on their own seem to significantly accelerate student learning. Whether that be how much money is invested, whether that be whether you have shiny buildings or shabby buildings, whether that be the length of the school year, whether that be the amount of school holidays, whether that be the amount of instructional time that is provided per subject area, or whether that be whether teachers are at home at night lovingly cutting up and preparing their activities for the next day or whether they say "Mm, I'm not going to do that instead I'm going to take this uh, well-designed third-party program off the shelf and I will just use this instead we see surprisingly little difference in learning outcomes from any of these decisions but clearly some of these things take more time more resource more energy and they are longer routes up educational Everest. And some of these other things enable you to just sidestep Everest, just walk around it and get to that same uh, endpoint destination as well. And so the provocation for us was if that is the case, then maybe we should look carefully at those things that we do. Think carefully about the efficiency of every minute that we are engaged in in this, in this process of teaching and learning. And whether all of that time at school is genuinely productive learning time or whether a significant proportion of it is filled with piffle, wiffle, with waffle, with padding uh, and things that make very little difference in the grand scheme of things. I guess it comes down to what John Hattie said with originally with visible learning, which is everything makes a difference, right? Everything we do generally makes a a positive difference. And most things, there's very little in education we do that makes uh, a negative difference. But 
it's how much difference is that making? And the idea is, is it what you're saying is that we're just doing so many of those small things. We need to really look at what's making the biggest impact and, and take away some of those smaller things. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? I, I think so. I mean, I, I, so I would say that it's, it almost adds, uh, it, it turns John's idea into uh, almost a game of 3D chess. So the two-dimensional thing is to say, well, um, which things make the most difference? And let's focus on uh, let's focus on those. The third dimension, though, is to say how many moving parts are there in each of those high impact things that we could be doing, and to what degree is it possible for us to do those things with fidelity? And then to say we will then focus in on those ones that have uh, less moving parts, take less time and less resource, uh, or we might also be looking at existing high impact things that we do at the moment and saying, well, uh, this is a 23 step process. Does it need to be a 23 step process or is there a six, a six step way that I could get through this same thing uh, and get to the same outcome, which would save me an hour a day that I could then reinvest in something else that, that would be uh, equally or even more profound driver of, of improvement as well. I, I get it. I, I mean, interestingly, Aaron, this kind of idea of, okay, do less of what's making less of an impact, you know, de-implementing, it sounds kind of obvious in a way, like it kind of says, well, of course, surely, surely leaders would naturally want to do that. So there must be something, something in the way that makes that hard to do in practice. Could you talk a little bit to that? Why do you think it is that we're, we're not de-implementing? It's a very interesting, uh, and actually it's, it's a profoundly interesting question because when we uh, looked at this and when we talked to people about it, everyone says, yeah, that seems very straightforward. It seems, it seems very easy. And then we ourselves, in order to go and to do the research to write this book, we went and dug into the literature on this notion of de-implementation. And we found only around 30 high-quality studies globally. Most of those were in healthcare. About 10 of them were in education. We were surprised that something that would be uh, so useful and so important to consider was such a gap in the literature. Even within these studies, most of them were conceptual. So they were talking about the idea of de-implementation, what it might mean, how people might think about it. Very little of that research looked into how you might systematically bring it to life. And in fact, that's why we wrote the book, because we said, hey, no one's actually done this before. Uh, and you know, Or no one's written a tome, like a huge tome that looks uh, at all of the different ways that you can do it and, and really drills into the detail of how you might set up a professional learning community in an organization in a school to bring this about so we pushed ahead with that but to directly answer your question why is it so challenging as part of this as this research process we looked at a number of different studies that were kind of profound insightful so we realized that there seems to be and i'll say there seems to be because this is still an early area of research but for example gabrielle adams and colleagues two years ago published a really interesting paper in Nature where they asked people to solve problems. And each of these problems could be solved through additive approaches or subtractive approaches. So you could, you could add more ingredients to the cake or you could take some ingredients out. You could add more ingredients to your bridge or you could remove uh, chunks of your bridge, well, you know, whatever it is. And what they found was that everyone 
or, or I should say almost everyone, but, uh, but virtually everyone, chose the additive solutions. Whatever problem they were faced with, they chose an additive solution to that, unless they were explicitly primed in advance. And the experimenters said to them, you know, there's more than one way you can do this. You can, you can solve this through adding, and you can also solve it by subtracting. And then they said, aha, okay, I will now think about those subtractive possibilities as well. So it seems that we may be primed to solve things by adding and adding and adding. And that is possibly why um, school workloads are growing higher and higher as we hoover up and try and implement more shiny programs and spread our resource ever more thinly. And there's a second dimension as well that I I'll just briefly allude to, which is it's really hard to unlearn. So if you've got an ingrained behavior, you're implementing something in a particular way, uh, it's really hard to unlearn that behavior or that practice. You can quarantine something, but our brains do not seem to be structured like computers where you can take a prior habit and you can drag it across to a recycling bin and you can purge it, it's still there. So imagine something like you decide that you're going to de-implement eating by going on a diet. And you're not gonna stop eating full stop because you need calories, right? But let's say you were, uh, and this is obviously a non-educational example, but you've decided you're going to de-implement food by changing the kinds of things that you eat so that you get less calories. You do that for a few months and then you go on holiday and there is a fine buffet breakfast every day and you decide that you're going to just have that for, uh, for, for the week. And then you find that you have reverted back to your prior behaviors. And so we see this quite often. So people might make de-implementation intentions much in the same way as people make New Year's resolutions that they're going to stop certain behaviors. And then two weeks later, they have found that they have backslid into those very things that they had decided that they were not going to continue with. So there's, this is this, so this this is a you know is a profound barrier, and it means that we need really rigorous and robust processes to keep us uh, on the straight and narrow with our de-implementation intentions. I'm I'm nodding along because yeah, that second point you say about habits and about us kind of bouncing back, you know, I think we can all resonate with in our own lives, you know, in terms of the habits, the bad habits we get into and how difficult it is to, to, to change them. But also on that first point you meant about, we like adding things, we like new things or, or not that we just like them, but we think to solve a problem. It's interesting that these studies show that we just have this proclivity to just add, add, add into, to solve the problem. I think that's for the listeners of this podcast, uh, international school leaders. I think that's even more the case when you maybe look at schools such as international schools, which often have rich budgets, for example, that the idea that there is usually space budget wise to add. <laughs> so why not? Like, why not? Like, we've got this issue. Let's, let's add, let's add, let's add. I, I wonder, Aaron, if there are any good ideas that you come across commonly that are good starting places for schools to de-implement? Things that schools do a lot that are good to take away. We have assiduously avoided putting sort of top 10 lists together of things that you can and should do. So in, in the book, we have presented 80 things that you can consider. Some of those, as you look through them, might result in you nodding with glee and others might result in you uh, wanting to fall off the back of your chair or wondering whether the 
parents or the teachers will turn up like um, uh, villagers waving uh, burning pitchforks, right? And what, what we find is that as we present these lists in different contexts, we see uh, educators nodding and shaking their heads at exactly the same items because their contexts are so different. The way I would frame this is that what is important as you decide whether you want to de-implement something is whether it is an active ingredient in your context, whether it's something that is adding to your educational cake rising or whether it's just some uh, background padding that isn't a contributory factor. And I can, I can give an example of this. Let's say, and this is quite a, uh, it's quite a small area that you could de-implement. So you might think mm, this, this, this would not be a priority. I, I think it would be very reasonable to, to think mm, this wouldn't save us much time. But let's say you wanted to de-implement wall display uh, in your in your school, maybe teachers are spending lots of time cutting up, and students are as well, and sticking these things on walls. And then there are also distractions around the the interactive whiteboard because people's eyes are looking over at these items rather than uh, on on the, uh, the the learning materials. Now, whether or not it would be a good idea to de-implement wall display depends on whether it is an active ingredient in teaching and learning within your context. So if wall display is being used as a mechanism for feedback because you're updating it and you're using it as a mechanism to provide students with a place they can go and look on the wall and see where they are at and what their next steps are, then it would be unwise to de-implement wall display. Whereas if it's pretty but useless, it's just some things that you have lining the corridors that, that, that's just like a kind of a student or teacher created version of some, some artwork, then you might wonder whether that is time well spent and whether you might just nip down the shop and buy some posters to put up instead and then get on with your lives and never, and never come back to, uh, to, to wall display. And you might say similar things with things like a co-curriculum, for example. So if, if you have a thematic integrated curricula and your co-curricular activities that maybe you do in the afternoon actually extend and deepen what you're doing in your regular subjects, then that's an active ingredient. And actually dialing back on that would be, uh, could be very harmful. Whereas if it's just random bolt-ons, you might say, well, uh, perhaps, there, perhaps there would be no impact in dialing back all of this or some of this. Yeah. I mean, a leader who's listening might go, let's take the wall displays one. They might be listening, thinking, well, OK, if I've got you've just described wall displays that might be having higher impact and wall displays that might be having lower impact. So if I've got wall displays that are having lower impact, well, why can't I just then change them to make them more impactful? Why would I decide to de-implement? And you could, but there's opportunity cost uh, with every initiative that you uh, that, that you progress. So one of the most profound insights uh, for me came from some work that we did separately with Doug Reeves in the US. He, he did a very simple study where at the beginning of the year, he went around 2000 schools and he asked them, how many items are in your school improvement plan for the year? And then at the end of the year, he went back and asked them, how many have you actually done? Have you put into practice? Okay, and uh, unsurprisingly, uh, he found that there was an inverse relationship between the size and level of ambition, so the number of things. So some had 30 things in their plan. And uh, he went back at the end of the year and they'd made progress with almost none of it. Okay? Whereas others had identified two, three, maybe four things, and they had really pushed the needle and made uh, profound changes in those areas and they'd stuck close to it. Okay. So the challenge is that um, you, you might say, oh, well, there's, there's all these things that you can do, but there are only 24 hours in a day. 
you need to sleep in some of those hours. Uh, you need to go do other things other than be at work if you, if, you, if you wish to be refreshed and replenished. So it is important that you pick your additive initiatives with great care. And while you're doing that, you're pruning and subtracting alongside to make space to focus on those things that matter the most, because there are there, there will be things that will generate far more impact than others. I like that. You're thinking of like, as a leader, you're thinking a lot wider than this individual project. So we can often get hyper-focused on this specific area, right? Saying, oh, how do we make our wall displays better? We need to make our wall displays better because that's where that you know that's going to be great that's going to add but actually we need to look at it within the context of our whole school but what are all the things we're doing for impact and what's going to have the most impact because we just can't do everything well it's just not possible that is exactly it. i mean we we actually john hattie doug reeves janet clinton and i we actually collaborated on another uh, book building to impact which is the sister book to our de-implementation book. So you could see these as being the yin and the yang. So one is about, well, saying, how do we add? Uh, and one is about how do we subtract? And when we are thinking, uh, because yes, there, there are times where we, we're, not, we're not saying, look, we're, uh, subtraction is the only game in town. There's a point at which you subtract and you, you're, you're cutting to the bone and then you're cutting into the bone and then, you're, and then the, the bone collapses itself. You know, you're, uh, the, the, the endeavor collapses. So... But where you are looking to add, it's important that you identify your goal focus areas with, uh, you know, with really careful precision. You're probably looking for no more than one to three high priority initiatives that you want to pursue uh, in a given year. And the reason why it's that small number is because there's probably a lot of other things you're doing already. And it's very difficult to simultaneously keep your plate spinning whilst trying to launch another hundred kites uh, alongside as well. So you're really carefully saying, mm, what's the worst that could happen if we did not touch this area? Will anyone die? Will anyone's life chances be significantly undermined as a result of this? Will doing this thing radically push the needle on student learning? Or is it just a you know piece of puffery, a bauble on the Christmas tree that will make not one iota of difference? And if the answer to that is yes, it is a bauble, why do it? That makes a lot of sense to me. I'm wondering, um, Aaron, in your book, you're, you don't just create a, a strong case. I mean, you do create a strong case for the implementation, absolutely. But the main thrust of the book is a practical kind of um, framework for how to actually do it, right? Given the challenges we've just talked about. Um, now, we've just got a short chat today, so obviously we can't, and it's quite a big, thick um, book, Making Room for Impact. So, But I wonder if you could give a quick high-level overview of what does that process usually look like, de-implementation? And maybe, maybe there's one area we can go into a bit more detail in that maybe resonates a bit stronger with international schools. We have, uh, it is a four-stage process. It starts with discovery and what you are doing in discovery is the the senior leader is giving permission to establish a backbone team they're saying look um, it's perfectly fine for you to go and explore this notion of de-implementation we mustn't feel shameful or guilty about finding things to stop 
uh, we should see it as a badge of honor to focus on our efficiency of impact. We, we, mustn't, we, we mustn't engage in the sunk cost fallacy and just continue with initiatives for the sake of continuing with them because we've become emotionally invested in them. Once that, uh, that backbone team is established, they're going around looking at the school in various different ways. So they, they may be doing time and motion studies. They're, they may be interviewing teachers to see what it is that people are spending their time on. And they are also exploring what it was that got people doing those things in the first place. So what's, what's the backstory or history to those practices? whether that be about the school's identity or or, uh, or, or or whether it be about regulatory requirements or whether it just be about habit and beliefs. In order to narrow in on a small number of areas that might be worthy of de-implementing. And in, in that case, they're looking at things that take a lot of time, where there's lots of time savings that could be generated. Once they've got to that stage, in that discover stage, that maybe they've identified two or three or four things that might be worthy to de-implement in some way, they move to the decide stage. And in the decide stage, this is about uh, developing a de-implementation strategy and an action plan, because there's more than one way that you can de-implement something. So within our framework, we have uh, four R's. So if you are trying to de-implement something, you can remove the practice, so you can just stop doing it. You can reduce it, so that is cutting down. You can re-engineer it, which is cutting down the number of steps. It's something that took 48 steps, now takes 25 steps. Or you can replace it with something else. And an example of, of this, a non-educational example we often give is, let's say you wanted to de-implement smoking. So you could go cold turkey and quit, that's remove. You could cut down, maybe, maybe you're a really seasoned, hardcore smoker, you run 60 a day and you can say, I'm gonna cut down to 30. So that, that's a reduce. You can re-engineer, so you could say, oh, I'm gonna to continue to smoke my 60 cigarettes a day, but instead uh, I will not inhale them. So you're re-engineering the way that you're engaging in smoking to make it less harmful. Or you can say that you're going to replace it. So I will drink tea instead, or I will take up vaping. One of those is an unrelated replacement. Drinking tea is an unrelated replacement. Vaping would be a related replacement. You're still getting your, uh, your hit of nicotine to make you less grumpy. Okay, so you're working through that and you're thinking about the opportunity costs of those. You're stress testing them and saying, well, um, you know, is, would, is it harmful for me to do this? Would it be easy to implement? Uh, would it be acceptable? Will I save time? You know, what, 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 whatever, whatever it is. I mean, in the case of smoking, it's not about saving time. It's about improving your health. But in, in a school life, you know, you're thinking about this probably from, from a time saved perspective. And you're pre-morteming, so you're saying, well, what, what would, would we be able to actually stick to this? You know, and going back to that smoking example, you'd be saying, well, I, I'm making this commitment, I'm not going to inhale, I'm still going to smoke, but I'm not going to inhale. Really? I, I, you know, how many times am I really gonna to stick to that before I revert to my prior practice? And therefore, does that sound realistic? And if not, let's push that to the side and look at one of the other strategies in those, those other quadrants as well. So, so you're doing that. And then you are uh, deciding which strategy you're going to put into place. You're putting an evaluative plan around it, which is just, have we saved time? Are we doing what we set out to do? Is student learning being harmed as a result of this? And then the final two stages, you are de-implementing. So you're putting that plan into practice and you are either you're removing or reducing or re-engineering exactly as you had laid out. And then 
the final stage, you are redeciding and you're, you're bouncing backwards and forwards between de-implementing and redeciding uh, quite regularly because you're, when, when you are redeciding, you are looking at the evaluative data from your actions to say, has this caused, has this caused harm? Have, has it saved time? Should we continue with it? And then once, once it's become uh, imbibed that we have de-implemented successfully, shall we find something else to de-implement or should we put de-implementation in the cupboard for a bit and move back to additive things because we've got this time and instead we want to focus on what we do with that time and how we use that time to best effect. Well done for summarizing that, that whole thing in a succinct. So this is great. So you've got a four-step process to de-implement. First is around permission, and I think that's going to resonate a lot with international schools, especially sometimes international schools have um, big complex structures. Maybe they're part of a big web of other international schools, and there's a, there's you know accountability there. So the the permit stage is going to be particularly important. Then we go into decide, and in decide you've got four things to decide, and this is what I think is was one of the most powerful parts of the book for me of the model. The idea that there's four types of of things you can do to de-implement. Because I think when I first saw the 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 title de-implementation, what immediately comes to mind is remove. Like, how do we get rid of stuff? And just as a leader, having a framework that goes, well, consider first removing, but consider how you might reduce, re-engineer or replace something. It's not just about getting rid of what what's not having the highest impact. Um, because I think that, that can be as potentially equally as uh, damaging as adding new things quickly, right? Is the impulse to just, I've seen so many schools that have just, kind of new leaders come in and have gone, what is that? Get rid of that. What is that? Get rid of that. And let's start a new thing. This is a very common, a common trait in schools. Um, so I like that there's this, this is four areas that you get to scope out. I mean, did you, have you found that with schools that you've worked with or in the research for the book? Is there, is there more of a leaning towards removing sometimes? Actually, we, we find that more commonly there's a, there's a, a movement towards replacement. And so we, we find that replacement is is actually the most common strategy in school improvement. So new leader rocks up, they've been to some conferences, they've imbibed some shiny new ideas, and they say, oh, we think that this, I think that this is the special magic bullet that will solve all the problems in this school, even though I've only been here for five minutes and I'm not sure what the problems are, if indeed there are any problems or what the priorities are. And it's almost, uh, I, I sometimes give a medical example of this, it's almost like going to a conference where you have uh, medical doctors uh, talking about different treatments that you can can use and someone's standing up on stage uh, waxing lyrical about hip replacements and then you and then someone comes back and the, you know the gp comes back to the surgery and then starts prescribing hip replacements to everyone um, now hip replacements are great if if you've got a bad hip uh, they're not the only thing that can help your hip but you know if you've got an ingrown toenail uh, you know a hip replacement is not what you need so the, so the danger often is you, you have school leaders going away and they're basically coming back with the educational equivalent of hip replacements uh, and their school doesn't have the educational equivalent of 
the hip problem. Okay, so often there is a tendency to default uh, to, to, to replacement is part of that uh, shiny additiveitis that, that, that we seem to all have. You're so right. I'm thinking, you know, I used to work in primary schools mainly, and I remember a school that I worked with that maybe, you know, when learn, in early reading schools follow phonics programs. And I remember one school that went through three different phonics programs in in about four years because I think leaders had gone out to these new conferences, heard about this new type of phonics program and just kept changing it. Yeah, just kept uh, replacing it. So that makes a lot of sense to me, actually. It's not that everyone's wanting to remove as such. In fact, probably, yeah, it's actually that we 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 see something new and we think let's oh let's change things up let's change things up the the other thing that's really hard we find is uh is the reduce uh quadrant so so if you say uh, so i gave the smoking example earlier of uh you know of, you know you're going to cut down or or even dieting you're going to cut down on your eating for example so if you think about this educationally you know you, you might have some practice in your school and, and you say well rather than you know rather than having uh you know assemblies three times a week we'll have them once a week or rather than setting home you know uh, twice weekly homework we'll set once weekly homework or or, or you know whatever it is Often what we find is that um, it's, it's harder to cut down than it is either to stop or to re-engineer something. So, so often when you cut down, over time, uh, the impulse creeps back up. You know, the habit to uh, engage in the, uh, in the practice again uh, resurfaces. Whereas if you remove, you know, as you think about, well, why, why, um, why smoking cessation, for example, is more successful than diet, uh, than going on a diet, it's because you actually stop smoking. And after a while, you just stop wanting to do it. Whereas if you go on a diet, you're reducing your food intake, but you're still eating, right? So because you, you can't stop eating, you still need to get your calories somehow, right? And so over time, there's that danger, that example I gave earlier, you, you, you go on the, the, the all-inclusive holiday and then you, you have the breakfast and then the lunch and the dinner every day and then you need a, a wheelbarrow to, to bring you home at the end of the holiday. And then you find that you still cannot stop uh, eating. So, it's, so the, the danger with the reduce, so you, so you have to understand that, you know, that there is a potential that you might backslide when, when, you, when you go down that reduce path. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you just need to understand that there is that potential and think about what the triggers for that might might be in your context and try and put some mitigations around those so that you uh, so that you reshape your environment so that you you, you don't backslide into those prior behaviors mm, the discipline that you need for that kind of that kind of challenge i hadn't yeah i hadn't thought of that i think this is bringing to mind for me how why this book making room for impact is so needed it's such a surprise that this kind of thing hasn't been done before in the way in the way you've done it because it is so important and it's not just that simple idea of you know do less of what has less impact and do more of what works more that of course that's obvious but the how of doing it um is 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 challenging and it needs some kind of structure behind it which i think is what you've offered with this model and i know this is a you almost see this as a starting point in you talk about in the book as well as a starting point for conversations for people to build around um, and for people to implement in their schools. I mean, other than going out and getting the book and having a good rifle through the, the, um, the sections, what would you, what would you recommend for an international school leader who was just wanting to get started on their de-implementation journey and started to dip their toe in this water where where would be a good place in your mind to start 
I, I, I'd probably start with, with the mind frames of, of the implementation. So n- not just thinking about whether what I am doing, if I'm a school leader, uh, whether what I am doing is having an impact but thinking about it from the perspective of whether it is the most efficient way to generate that impact. And just really reflect on that. Reflect on all the things that you do uh, within the school day and reflect on whether those things and all the things that your staff are doing within the school day and whether those things truly are a good use of time and resource. So whether uh, time at school equals productive learning time or whether there's a big gap between, you know, the time at school is much wider than the actual productive learning time. And I think when, when we all think from that perspective, we will realise, yeah, there, there, there is a gap. Maybe we should think about how to quantify that and think about those things that are unproductive and how we might make some changes to those so that we can then refocus on the things that matter more. Just think about whether what you're doing is a good use of your time, whether it is the best use of your time, whether you are needlessly climbing that educational Mount Everest and cutting your shins and injuring yourself as you're doing so, working yourself to a frazzled state, or whether there is a more efficient way that you can get to exactly the same outcome by walking around Everest. It gets both you and your students to that same place with much less time, with much less motion and with much greater amounts of sleep. I think Aaron Hamilton, John Hattie and Dylan William really create a strong framework and a strong call to action for schools to start de-implementing in their settings. I particularly love the strategy of thinking about the how to de-implement. Do you remove? Do you reduce? Do you re-engineer? Or do you replace? I think if you're looking for a starting point in your school to get going, that would be the perfect framework to discuss with your teams. If you want to learn more, this book is a chunky book, but it's full of practical ideas, and I really recommend you pick that up. Links for where you can get that book are in the show notes. Global Ed Leaders is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leading, with original music by Guillermo Silva. If you liked what you heard in this show, I'd love it if you reached out and let me know. You can contact me online on X. My handle is at Shane. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at shaneleaning.com or using those links in the show notes. But as always, if we don't speak before, I'll see you here next week.